form of many. No big deal. But if he's preeminent, if he's the preeminent being in the universe, now we got a whole different story. Because it is one thing even to be the preeminent Chicago-style pizza. And that maybe can be debated, but you're not going to change my mind. But if Jesus is preeminent, now you're into a whole different ballgame. Because that means if he's preeminent, he is preeminent in the ultimate sense. It means the, he's number one in the universe without equal. There is no number two. And the next few verses in Colossians are going to make the case that Jesus is the one without equal. The one that all aspects of the universe answer to. So today we're going to look at verses 15 through 17 that talk about Jesus' preeminence. And then next Sunday we're going to continue where it talks about Jesus' preeminence in the church. We're saving that one for its own message because that has a whole bunch of interesting implications. Colossians 1, verses 15 through 17. Let's just read through it real quick. Here he, he Jesus, of course, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, and all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So the first thing I want to point out is how this passage reminds us that Jesus is how we understand God. Look at the first part of verse 15 again. He is the image of the invisible God. Now, when we think image, when I say that word image, you just read that. You sort of, we sort of think of a picture, a video, maybe look at yourself in the mirror or whatever. Something that looks like something. Now, the Greek word here that's translated image is the word icon. Just like icon, like think of an icon. Icon is not just like a copy of something. Like in the old, you remember, I'll show my age here. Anybody remember mimeographs? Right, the purple ink thing, right? When, when I was out in Pennsylvania, back in the dark ages, back then, when I was, you know, oh, that was the 90s, sort of like the dark ages, um, before the internet, before cell phones, we printed our bulletins in the mimeograph machine. Our poor secretary's fingers were purple at the end of the day on Friday, right? Because it made up kind of a poor copy, right? It wasn't that great. And the more you ran off that single master, the worse they got. This is not what this word means. Okay? <laughs> not what this word means. It is the exact opposite of what it means. This word has to do with illuminating the inner core or essence of something. It means representing the thing that is imaged perfectly. It's better than a copy. It's perfect representation. When we call Christ the image of God, we're saying that his being and his nature perfectly manifest to us what God is like. The invisible God becomes visible in every way possible because of Jesus. It's, it's reminiscent of Jesus' words to Philip in John 14. Uh, verses 8 and 9, Philip said to him, Lord, right, this is after the whole discourse about you don't know where I'm going in my father's house or many mansions, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, blah, blah. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me
say, show us the Father? Philip wants to see God, and Jesus says, look, dude, if you have seen me, yeah, you've seen him. It's right here. Jesus is the exact representation of God on earth. You want to know what God is like, then look to Jesus. Unlike people, which Genesis also describes as being made in the image of God, right? Different words in Hebrew. Jesus is the perfect, absolutely accurate image of God. People are made in the image of God, but not in the way Jesus shows us the image of God. He didn't become the image of God at the incarnation. He has been that from all eternity. Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So, verse 3 here is described as the radiance of God's glory. Right? He radiates everything that God is. Kind of like how the sun's light radiates from the sun, right? You want to know what sunlight looks like? You look at the sunlight that radiates from the earth. You hopefully do not take a telescope and point it at the sun and look right at the sun. That's how those filters come out. Otherwise, they'll burn your retinas out. Bad. It also says he's the exact imprint of God's nature. That word there is actually a word you're probably familiar with in English. It's the word character. It's where we get the word character from. It has to do with something engraved or stamped. The idea that he visibly shows us who and what God is. So Paul here in Colossians that is emphasizing, trying to get across to us that Jesus is, is everything you want to know about God. He's the full, final, complete revelation of God. You want to know what God's like? Look to Jesus. Someone asks you, what's, what's God like? Who's God to you? Who do you worship and why? All you got to do is point him to Jesus. Tell them to go read about Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You want to find out what God's like? Go read the Gospels. They'll tell you. If you want to know things about God, I'm going to tell you the place to start is not a theology textbook. I mean, those are useful. I got a couple. Not a list of attributes like God is holy and God is all knowing and that sort of thing. Those are also useful. Those are things about God. But if you want to know God, you got to look to Jesus. I mean, honestly, any any good Muslim would tell you God is all-knowing and God is omniscient and that sort of thing. If you want to know what God really is like, you need to look to Jesus. So understanding that, that Jesus is God made visible, that makes the next statements, I think, even more powerful. Because Paul wants us to understand that because he's God, God in the flesh, yes, but God, he is preeminent. In fact, he's going to give us three ways Jesus is preeminent. First, he's preeminent over the material world. Second half of verse 15 and verse 16. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So here's Paul reminding us that Jesus is the creator of all things, earthly and heavenly. We're told he's the firstborn of all creation. Now, we think of firstborn, you know, we're thinking of first child in a family. That's how we talk about it. Firstborn here in this context refers to rank. 
In ancient societies, Israel, Rome, you name it, the firstborn, particularly the firstborn son, held a special place of privilege. Special? Can't say that three times fast, can I? A special place of privilege. As the one who would inherit the largest share of the inheritance, the one who would become the patriarch of the family. Jesus is the one who's first rank in all creation. He's the one who inherits it, who rules over it. Because he created it. He knows it intimately. He created it. And it was, as we'll find out in a second, created for him. You ever, ever heard of the scientific idea of the anthropic principle? Does anybody know what that means when I say the anthropic principle? Basically, it's the idea that if you look at the universe, the universe is perfectly designed so that you and I can live. Perfectly designed for human life. Think about it. If the Earth rotated differently or revolved around the sun differently, we wouldn't be able to live, right? If it was a little bit closer, right? I mean, I know the Earth's orbit varies a bit as it goes around. But if it was a little bit closer, a little bit farther away, it'd be too cold, too hot. If the moon was a little bit closer to the Earth, bye-bye Florida coast, right? Because the tides would be too big. If you change the composition of the gases in the atmosphere of the earth, just a little bit, we all die. Take away a few percent of oxygen or add a little extra nitrogen, not going to go so well. Change the mass of the proton just a tiny bit, and hydrogen disappears from the universe. And the universe would fall apart because that's the dominant element of the universe. Everything in the universe is primed human flourishing. Max Planck, who was winner of Nobel Prize, one of the founders of modern physics, maybe you don't know who that is, but if you study physics like I do, Planck is a huge, huge name in physics. He wrote, according to everything taught by the exact sciences about the immense realm of nature, a certain order prevails. One independent of the human mind, this order can be formulated in terms of purposeful activity. There is evidence of an intelligent order of the universe to which man and nature are both subservient. In other words, it was created by somebody some way for a reason, and you're the reason. Which is interesting, because you know, people, people who want to deny this, you were out walking, you were walking through the parking lot. And I realized our parking lot has some spots that are degrading. Right? And you were walking near one of those degraded spots in the parking lot. Tyler's walking out to his truck. And he finds a watch on the ground. And he picks up this watch that's on the ground. And he thinks to himself as he's holding this watch, it's a Breitling. You ever seen a Breitling watch? They're beautiful. Much nicer than a Rolex. He says, wow, where this concrete had fallen apart, 
a watch emerged <laughs> by organizing itself. Amazing. And I have it now. A watch that's worth more than my house. Probably was like, well, probably was more than my house. But I mean, that's like a $40,000 watch. It's worth more than my car for all of them put together. <laughs> right? No, no, no one, no one, no one, unless they have engaged in severe use of funny mushrooms from possibly <laughs> that out of the crumbled dust in the ground, in the parking lot, a brightling watch emerged by accident, by evolution. And any scientist worth their salt would tell you that the universe is far more complex than just a any fine Swiss timepiece. And to think that all happened by accident is absurd because all of existence tells us that everything is by design from the molecular level to the DNA instructions of light to the stars and the heavens. So since he designed it and since he created it, he is preeminent in relation. He is over and above the entire material world in every way, shape, and form. And if you notice how verse 16 points out that the creation is also for him. He not only made it, he not only designed it. Well, that's, that's loaded, right? It's for him. Probably should have its own sermon. It's the very reason that everything is made. It's all made for Jesus. He wanted to express his love to something, to someone. So that love that exists in the Trinity causes creation to be made to demonstrate God's glory and his love for himself and within himself and for his creatures. So he's above the created world, both as creator and the reason for creation. But it's not just the physical world he's above. Paul also points out he is above the non-physical world. Of the world that exists outside the physical reality around us. He's preeminent over the spiritual world. Verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Now, when anybody you see that in the Bible about thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities, it's talking about the various ranks or types of spiritual beings. Far from being an angel or some other spiritual being, which was a very common belief in the time of Jesus. Okay, there were whole heresies around this idea of Jesus as a created being or, or even being an angel. He's above all of that. The writer of Hebrews makes a clear distinction in the first chapter between Christ and the angels. Because the writer of Hebrews says, of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire? But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom different from the angels. He's above them. He's ruler over them. Paul writes in Ephesians, right, that Jesus has been exalted far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name in his name. Not only in this age, but the age to come. That's Ephesians 1.21. We know that everything in the universe will bow to him, right? Philippians 2.10. Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess. Everything. Heaven and on earth and under the earth. 
If it isn't in heaven and it isn't on earth and it isn't on anything, I don't know where it is. That's pretty much everything. Anything else? Peter says in 1 Peter 3.22 that Christ is at the right hand of God having gone into heaven, right, after his ascension. After angels and authorities and powers, those are those spiritual beings again, have been subjected to him. They're all under him. Just think about the evidence of the Gospels, right? Jesus in his earthly incarnation, just while he's walking the earth, has power over spiritual beings, right? Can any demon refuse his command? They know they can't. They plead with him because they know they can't refuse his command. Once he commands them, they have to do whatever he says. Matthew 26, right? It's in the garden. Soldiers come to arrest Jesus. Peter pulls out his sword. He's waving his sword around like a crazy guy. Bam. I don't know how it really happened. It probably didn't. Tells him to put his sword away, right? What does he say to him? He says, You gotta love Jesus, because Jesus will just, I mean, for a lot of reasons. But he will he throws out these like kind of crazy things, right? And he just he just leaves them there, and you've got to deal with them. Like he says to Peter, he says, Do you not understand? Now, how's Peter gonna understand this, right? Because he doesn't know anything about this. Do you not understand that if I wanted, my father in heaven would send more than 12 legions of angels to defend me? Do you not understand? Peter's like, what? <laughs> right? Because how are you going to understand? Nobody's ever told Peter about 12 legions of angels. But Jesus is just like, yeah, bro. Look, if I need to defend it, I got to cover. Okay. Angelic armies, they're kind of mine. God, right? Always remember, Book of Kings, one angel in one night wipes out the entire Assyrian army. 180,000 people. One angel, one night, wipes out the Assyrian army. I don't want to know what happens when like 120,000 angels show up. It's over, folks. I mean, like the dude in the movie Alien, game over, man, we're all going to die. Because when 120,000 angels show up and they're angry, you're in trouble. You know what? You're not going to have to imagine. You know why? Because someday Jesus is going to return and his angels will come with him. We'll find out. This is one of those things that I think is of such importance in our daily lives, but we don't probably think about it that much. There is spiritual warfare going on all around us. Those demonic spirits that Jesus dealt with all the time, right? They didn't just, Jesus didn't just rise from the dead and they all went away and said, oh, well, we're just going to go into hibernation for a few centuries. They're still here, right? You see them all over the place. Racism, hate, mass killings. There was just this guy in Maine, right, that went and killed all these people and then killed himself. Why do you think that happens? Warfare, addictions, every kind of temptation and vileness have spiritual components behind them in some way or another. Now, that doesn't absolve you from your own choices or me from my own choices or the guy in Maine from his own choices. But there's spiritual components behind these things influencing and, and causing problems. Think about this. 
against a small group of people who have existed for centuries, yet have been persecuted pretty much every place they ever go. They go anywhere, and within a few decades, they're getting persecuted. There is no other explanation to me that makes sense other than that there is spiritual warfare and demonic opposition to God's people Israel, and that foments hate everywhere they go because they're God's people, the demons hate them. And their survival, in my mind, despite their present rejection and hardening, Romans chapter 11, is testimony to the preeminent Christ preserving them, despite the massive attempts to wipe them out. Jesus is over all these spiritual things. All spiritual beings ultimately must obey his command. He's preeminent over them. Which means we can call on him to intervene in these spiritual battles. But you've got to first understand that there's a spiritual battle. And that that warfare takes place around us. And then have the faith to believe and call on the name of Jesus, who is the one who is preeminent over all spiritual beings, good and evil. It's all about him. It's not about you. I don't have any power over demons or any of that. Jesus does. So since I know him, that's what makes the difference in spiritual order. I can pray to him. I can ask him to send help. Well, what do you know? Last one. Just in case there's any misunderstanding about the preeminence of Jesus, right? He's preeminent over everything in the physical world. He's prevalent over everything in the spiritual world. But just in case, you miss something. Look at verse 17. He is before all things. And in him all things hold together. He's preeminent over everything else. If, if there's something that isn't covered, if you come up with something that isn't covered by physical world, spiritual world, that's okay. Paul's got you. He is before all things. His preeminence is reinforced by this idea of beyond, beyond all things. It's not a time reference. It's not like he's before everything in time, although he is, he's eternal. It's a reference to authority. He's in charge. He stands above all things. He's the boss. He created it. He's in charge of it. To be before all things means that everything is beneath him. Everything is subject to his power and rule. The great scholar F.F. F. Bruce puts it this way. The phrase, before all things, sums up the essence of his designation as firstborn before all creation, and excludes any possibility of interpreting that designation to mean that he is part of the created order. In other words, there's nothing anywhere, at any time, in any way, that comes before Jesus or is somehow able to go against him, rule over him, or challenge his preeminence over everything. Nothing. There's nowhere to be, you know, it's, it's just like, if you got a legal case, and you lose, you can appeal, right? To the appellate court. And then, if you lose there, you can even appeal to the federal appellate court. And if you lose there, you could maybe appeal to the Supreme Court, maybe, if they take it. There ain't nowhere to go after that. If you lose at the Supreme Court, you're done. There's no higher.
all the land. Well, Jesus is way above the Supreme Court. Everything, everywhere, at all times answers to him. So then I got this little phrase, in him all things hold together. I think I told you before when we were talking about creation. Remember hearing a preacher a long time ago talking about how Jesus is literally holding the molecules of the universe together by his power. And I thought to myself, man, that's a hard way to make the universe. That it literally requires Jesus to intervene himself to hold everything together? I'm not sure that's exactly what's meant here. I think it has more to do with when it talks about him holding things together, him goes back to the idea of creation, disorder and order. He brings order. He's the light that dispels the darkness. He brings order to the chaos. And sin brings darkness and disorder. But Jesus is the light and the life of mankind, so he holds things together even though sin is working to tear them apart. Remember, the principle of sin is trying to tear the world down, trying to tear people apart, trying to tear the world apart, it's corruption. Jesus is keeping that from destroying everything. That's encouraging to me because, you know, sometimes it just feels like everything's falling apart. I was joking with Jen's mom and her friend Terry at the funeral yesterday. I don't know how we got on the subject. Well, it's because Terry had just gotten married year and a half ago. I said, I would, I would rather do 10 funerals than a wedding. It's not because I don't want people to get married. I do. But weddings are a lot of work. And when you're doing the ceremony, all you got to do is make one tiny mistake, and then you can just ruin it right the whole day. Funerals, through the pastor, are a lot easier. Because even though it's sad, basically, you just got to hug some folks, say some nice things about the deceased, preach the gospel. You shouldn't be able to mess that up. If you're a pastor, you shouldn't be able to mess that up. <laughs> I mean, I've been to a few funerals where they messed that up. <laughs> I'm saying, right? Okay. Well, I got to thinking, the way this year has gone, I might get my wish to have 10 funerals for a wedding. It sure feels like everything's falling apart. But see, Jesus is holding it together. So there's nothing in the universe outside of his control. He's preeminent over everything, so there's nothing out of his control. He's the authority above all things. He created all things. He's keeping all things together. There's nothing physical. There's nothing spiritual. There, there's nothing anywhere at any time that is outside of his control, even though some days it feels like nothing is in control. He's going to keep it all together until the day of final redemption. In fact, it, it brings me to one final thought, which is we're going to explore next Sunday in much more depth. But this, this, is, this thought has plagued me for days. Like, I mean, when I say plagued, I woke up in the middle of the night with this question on my mind since I started studying this, this section of Colossians. And it goes something like this, and I realize I'm weird, so I wake up at night thinking about these things. Um, and it's okay. You gotta love me anyway. <laughs> if Jesus is preeminent over all things material, spiritual, and otherwise, whatever other things it might be, I don't know, let's be on that. What does that mean for us on a daily basis? 
our lives. What would that even look like? Because I'm laying there, wait, what does it even mean that Christ would be preeminent over everything in my life? Well, we're going to ponder that a little bit next Sunday. But you can think about that between now and next Sunday. Maybe you too can wake up at 1.30 in the morning and think about what does it mean if Christ is preeminent over everything in the universe, how is he preeminent or how am I keeping him from being preeminent in my life? Okay. So does anybody, if you want to know what God's like, here's luck. Because Jesus himself is going to tell us everything we need to know about God. And one of the first things we're going to realize when we come to meet Jesus, one of the first things that we're going to come to understand is that there is nobody like him anywhere in the universe. There's no other person or being in the universe that compares to Jesus Christ because he is over and above all of them. There's nothing, in fact, in the universe that is not subject to the creator and sustainer of all things because he's preeminent. He's not just prominent. He's not just one among many. He is preeminent over the physical world. He is preeminent over the spiritual world. He is preeminent over anything else that might exist if there's anything that exists that doesn't fall into the realm of physical or spiritual. He's preeminent over that too. Whatever exists anywhere at any time, he is preeminent over for all time. And so the question becomes then, if that's true, how is he preeminent in my life? Let's pray. Father, as we finish out this time together in your word, we're reminded that our Savior and our Lord is not just the Savior and Lord of our hearts or of our lives, but is the preeminent being of the universe. And he's the King and King, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's not just the fun title. That is literally that he is ruler over all creation. Anything that exists, he is preeminent over, he is ruler over. He created it, it is by him and for him. Which means we were created by him and for him. And so he should hold preeminent place in our lives and in our hearts. And so may we ponder how, how that works in our daily lives. Christ will be preeminent in all things, especially in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.